0: So, welcome back to the second episode of the Paul Sock Podcast. I'm delighted that you've decided to stick with us, I really am. Before we dive into the episode, I have a few quick housekeeping announcements for you, though. The first is to make sure that you go and check out our new website, com, which is now up and running thanks to the patience and care and attention of my 10-year-old daughter, who I have now rechristened Tech Support why would you bother going to the website? Well, as time goes on, there'll be a growing number of resources available for you there that you can use to supplement your own work in school and your own individual study. Each episode will have a page dedicated to what we're calling the podcast notes. This week, for example, we have explanations of the key phrases used within the episode and a handout that you can fill in as you listen along that we hope will help you to develop your own note-taking ability, which is really a key skill. There'll also be some links to other helpful videos that will expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. And if you want to get email updates from the website when new episodes and resources are posted, be sure to hit the subscribe button on the homepage, where you'll also be able to check out some of our recent tweets from at on the site to help you follow along with other interesting activities. If you're interested in entering our logo competition, stay tuned until the end of the episode for details on how you can contribute in a very tangible and visible way to the success of this project. Suffice it to say that I'll be relying heavily on you, the student, to make up for my complete absence of any artistic or design abilities, but more on that later. This week I was lucky enough to talk with Professor Robert Armstrong of Trinity College Dublin who was a world-renowned historian of 17th century Britain and Ireland. I was delighted that Professor Armstrong was able to take the time to join us and to offer his insights for your benefit. I started off by asking Professor Armstrong to give us a little bit of historical context to help us understand the times in which Thomas Hobbes lived and the circumstances that led to the publication of Hobbes' most famous work, The Leviathan.
1: Well, Leviathan was published in 1651. At that stage, Thomas Hobbes is already in his 60s. Uh, so it's a book that comes out of many decades of thinking about political issues. But the immediate context of publishing Leviathan, there are two very important things to bear in mind, and they, they, they help to shape the sorts of ideas that go in there. One is that England has just come through a long period of civil war, and this is probably the most destructive conflict that England has experienced in uh, possibly until the first world war in terms of the loss of life so one thing that you see all the way through leviathan and particularly in the middle chapters is that hobbes is trying to think how does a society or a state fall apart what can you do to prevent that kind of thing happening And a lot of the individual concerns that he raises you can see them in parallel back to events that have happened in england the kind of dangers that he sees in a society the other big element of, of background i suppose is that by 1651 the war is over and Hobbes's side has lost. So the war is between the king and his parliament. Uh, Hobbes supported the king. The king has been not only defeated, but killed, and England has become a republic. So many of the associates uh, that Hobbes would have are thinking, what to do next? How long do you keep supporting a defeated cause or a lost cause? Can you find a way to make peace with a new regime? So another thing that he's thinking about, and again you, you can see coming across in Leviathan, is what is the purpose of any given state? And if the purpose, as Hobbes would say, is to protect the lives and property of its subjects, then where a state comes from, its legitimacy, its origins are much less important than how effective it is. So he falls out with many of his old friends because they see him as saying it's time to make peace with the new republic because it can provide the kind of protection and safety for people that the king no longer can. I mean, maybe one of the things that's, that's absolutely central to Hobbes's book is his sense that states exist really to provide for the safety of people, Uh, that in what he calls our natural condition, we're always in in danger or we feel we're always in danger Uh, and states are there to protect. So yes, if a new republic can provide the kind of protection, then that's more important than looking for its origins, Uh, where other thinkers would say, oh, the state comes from a, a kind of divine origin or the state is founded on law, for Hobbes, those are much less important than what it's there to do. Hmm. Um, how, is, how is it that what Hobbes
0: does in, in Leviathan, how is that different from what's gone before, how other people
1: have thought about these issues? If we want to think about what's different about Leviathan, maybe we could split it up into his method and his conclusions. In terms of his method, one of the things that's very distinct about Leviathan is that he doesn't rely on authority. So thinkers before Hobbes, they would often say, well, you know, past philosophers, Aristotle said this, uh, or Thomas Aquinas said this, and they build their arguments around authority. Hobbes doesn't want to do that. He hardly ever mentions uh, any previous political thinkers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if he does, it's usually to disagree with them. Hobbes wants to persuade you by the sheer force of his reason. So he begins right back with first principles. What are human beings like? How do human beings, what are their needs and their wants, um, what are are the dangers that afflict them? And you work forward from that to construct a science of politics. And and that's one of the things he's very keen to do, to present politics as a science, not in the sense that, uh, say, chemistry is a science where you conduct experiments, but in the sense that mathematics is a science. So the one example Hobbes always likes to use is he says that politics is really like geometry. You work out your first principles and then everything logically follows. So his method is different. Uh, He's not building his case on what the laws say or on what has happened in history or on what the Bible says. He sometimes uses the Bible, but in very peculiar ways. He wants to persuade you that this is something you can deduce from first principles and argue logically. So his methods are different um, and his conclusions, I think, are different as well. Uh, His vision of the human condition and the the Famous quote that is always there that left to our own devices, we live, a, a, we would be living a life that is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, and what can we do to get out of that, to escape from that condition, and to build an order that, that provides protection for us? It's time for, it's quote, it's of time the for the quote of the Day.
0: Well, that sound means it must be time for a quote of the day. To be honest, I was a little bit nervous that last week's quotes on the theme of patriotism were a little bit obscure, so this week I've decided to try and take the guessing out of the equation. This time around, what I'm going to do is to steal the most liked tweet in history. The quote reads, No one is born hating another person because of the colour of his skin, or his background, or his religion. People must learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. The quote was originally from Nelson Mandela's book Long Walk to Freedom, published in 1994, only four years after his release from prison on Robben Island, where he served 27 years of a life sentence, having been charged with conspiracy to overthrow the apartheid state of South Africa. This powerful quotation was tweeted by former President Barack Obama in the aftermath of the alt-right rally in Charlottesville in August of 2017 that led to the murder of Heather Heyer. At the time of this recording, it had amassed almost 4.6 million likes on Twitter, so I'm confident that it will resonate with at least some of you. It's a quote that I think is particularly apt for the part of our course that deals with the ideas of multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism, Does it argues strongly that there's no underlying reason that people of different races and religions can't coexist peacefully and lovingly. Maybe it's just me, but I can't help wonder what Thomas Hobbes would have made of that quotation, clashing as it seems to do with his view of the state of nature, which you'll remember he saw as being, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. In another episode, we'll talk about the contrasting view of John Locke, and his idea of the tabula rasa, that blank slate, and see if that fits better with Mandela and Obama's position. I just hope I remember to refer back to it when we get to that episode. Anyway, back to Professor Armstrong. Uh, We might move on to one of the more random questions that my students had asked me. We kind of talked a little bit about the Enlightenment, and Hobbes is somebody obviously knew a lot of scientists he knew um kind of he'd met Galileo and René Descartes and uh, William Harvey and a few of those guys so how um
1: how does he fit in with the the guys who come later in terms of the Enlightenment or or what does that process look like I think in terms of the the later Enlightenment ideas there's some ways that Hobbes is very much in that line of thinking that sense of of following reason where it goes, regardless of what previous authorities might want to tell you, is a very Enlightenment kind of idea. Where he differs very significantly is that most of those thinkers we would normally think of as Enlightenment thinkers have quite a positive attitude uh, both to human nature and to human society. They feel that human there's an optimistic outlook on human potential. There's a sense that the world is becoming a better place. We can make it a better place. Uh, Whereas Hobbes uh, has a quite bleak view of human nature uh, and a sense that really all we can do is hold the line against chaos rather than build a better world. And that's out of having seen so much chaos himself. It's kind of his lived experience is kind of filtering into what he writes. I think his lived experience is important. I I suspect he he may have had something of that perspective anyway but certainly uh, what gives force to Leviathan more than the earlier works and what uh, gives it depth as well is this sense of having dealt with real-life crises, uh, and and ensuring that this kind of collapse of order doesn't happen again.
0: If you could kind of give us an outline, a summary of some of the key
1: ideas in Leviathan, I think the students would find that really helpful. One key idea in Leviathan would be the sense of why we need a state at all. Uh, Hobbes uses the term commonwealth, which is a bit like our term society and a bit like our term state, Commonwealth is, really just means the commonwealth or the common good. How is it that we produce some sort of state or society that looks after our common good rather than each of us trying to find what's best for us as individuals? So he begins with, with human beings and conducts a kind of thinking exercise. What would we be like if we were left to our own devices? Uh, and in a sense, he says that we're out to look after ourselves, possibly our families. We need to protect our lives. We need to ensure we have food and shelter. And the consequence is that we will fall into conflict with other human beings. So he begins with that, as I say, somewhat bleak perspective on, on, on the, the human condition. Not that I necessarily think he thought that was once the way we lived. He's trying to encourage us to think what would it be like uh, if we were without a state or a society. And then to think what might have drawn us to produce that kind of order. And his answer is that it maximizes the safety of each of us if we give up some of our liberty. So rather than my absolute right, not just to protect myself when I'm threatened, but to protect myself when I feel I might be threatened, to go and attack someone because I think they might be a danger to me or my family. If I surrender that right, and all of us surrender that right, then we will ensure greater protection for all of us uh, because we're not living in a state of constant conflict. But it means that, that the only way we can do that is to surrender that right to someone that we all recognize as being an authority. It might be one individual, a king, it might be a collective body, a group of lawmakers. But once we've handed over that that right, we hand them that right over much more fully than some other thinkers would have suggested.
0: Is this where we move towards the idea of the social contract?
1: Yes. So social contract is, is not unique to Hobbes by any means, but he has quite a distinctive twist on it. Social contract for many thinkers simply means people coming together, uh, surrendering certain rights or liberties or whatever we might want to call them uh, and forming a society and then often as a second contract uh, making a a, a sort of an arrangement or uh, some sort of a deal with an authority figure uh, that they will protect us and in return we will obey them and that sort of contract is a two-way process. If your ruler or your authority figure doesn't live up to their side of the deal, then the deal is over. Hobbes is a little bit different. For him, there's no way we can come together as a society without an authority figure. So it's only when we create a state uh, by putting someone in authority over us that we have any kind of unity at all. So for him, to break this contract means everything falls apart. You've surrendered much more of your your rights and your freedoms uh, than, say, in John Locke.
0: Untangle the Terminology. In this week's Untangling the Terminology, we're going to try and separate clearly the difference between divine right absolutism that we would associate with the period before Hobbes and philosophical absolutism that we would associate with Hobbes himself. Now, these two terms are big mouthfuls of terms, so I think probably the best thing to do is to ask Professor Armstrong to
1: untangle them for us. Well, maybe we'll just talk a little bit about each of them. That yeah. might be the, the easy way. Absolutism is a very tricky term, and historians spend a lot of time arguing about what it might mean. In one sense, it's a quite a simple term. It simply means that the person in authority is absolute. They have no superior. And this is really the way we think about states today. So someone in the 17th century could say the king of England is absolute. That means that no one else, not the king of France, uh, or the Pope, or the Holy Roman Empire, none of, emperor none of them can tell him what to do. So, in the same way, a sovereign state today uh, is absolute in that no external force can can order them around. But there's a slightly different meaning of absolute, and this is where it turns into absolutism, which is whether that person has any limits placed on them within their own uh, political order. So, can the laws put limits on what that person or that institution can do? And sometimes that sense of absolutism is associated with divine right. Divine right being that your political authority comes from God. Now, again, if you're living in the 1600s or the 1700s, it's hard to see where else your authority can come from. So perhaps saying that it comes from God means that it it comes directly uh, by a kind of divine appointment or indirectly. Maybe it's the people who put you in power. But, of course, uh, the people get that right from God. So divine right... Doesn't necessarily mean uh, that someone, in a sense, is directly appointed or their authority is biblical or theological. Um, but if you put the two things together, divine right and absolutism, it can result in a, a form of rule, usually associated with kings, um, where they have no obligation to anyone other than God. No one can force them to do anything, no one has the right to hold them, even to the law, because after all, they're the people who make the law. And if you're the lawmaker, Uh, then you stand above the law, you're superior to it. So divine right absolutism, we could think of as a way of viewing um, authority figures, particularly kings or emperors, uh, as as not really being limited externally by someone else, but also internally, not really limited by their own laws. Now, where Hobbes is a bit different uh, is that in a sense he doesn't go quite so far But in other ways, he goes further. So for Hobbes, divine right isn't really the issue. Uh, For Hobbes, it's a logical process which demonstrates where political power comes from. Uh, You don't need to look outside and find its source uh, in the Bible or in the teachings of the church. But yet he goes further uh, than most, what we might call absolutist thinkers. By taking out the sphere of religion, he's not really leaving any sphere of life where royal authority or the authority of the state doesn't extend. So most previous thinkers would say absolutism means you can't resist uh, the ruler, you can't rebel against them, you can't refuse his orders. But you can refuse his orders if they're unjust. You have no right to defy him, but if he orders you to do something that's wrong, you simply say no. And why do you say no? Because your conscience or because uh, your religious beliefs or your moral views tell you but things that the state might order are wrong. In some ways, the implication of what Hobbes says is that the state doesn't just tell you what's lawful and unlawful. The state tells you what's right and wrong. The only way we know what's right and wrong is to judge it by the law. So my views inside my own mind may go in various different directions, but publicly the state can determine uh, much more fully what I can do. So Hobbes in a sense has hollowed out that sphere Um, where we allow other considerations, particularly our own consciences, to determine how we should act politically. So his absolutism really extends to the realm of ideas and not just uh, to how we live our lives.
0: So as we see there in those two contrasting definitions of what absolutism is, religion is a big deal in the 17th century. Funnily enough, one of the things that I've most enjoyed about teaching politics and society is that it's the subject to me that seems to span, that seems to cover more subject areas than anything else. It draws in people who have knowledge of geography or economics, but if you're studying Soc and religion, you might be particularly interested in this next segment. Religion seems to be a kind of a constant factor in this, in, not only in this period of history, but in in what he's in what Hobbes is trying to argue. Uh, and there are some uh, some videos that the students would have looked at, for example, that will argue that Hobbes was an atheist. Would you go along with that, or how do you see religion fitting into his, his
1: work? As to whether Hobbes is an atheist, in one sense we, we can't really know. We do know that he, he practices religion, if in a very conventional way. At the time, it would, not, it would be unwise to be too open about atheist opinions. A more interesting question might be to ask whether Hobbes is a Christian. And there we're a bit less certain Um his idea of God is pretty abstract and doesn't seem to have much bearing um, on his political views so he builds his case in Leviathan and elsewhere as if there were no God and, and in a way that's what people in the 1600s would mean by the term atheist it's less whether you uh, at some abstract level believe in God or not it's more whether your belief in God affects how you live um, and your views and at that level Hobbes has in a sense taken the divine out of his political philosophy to a greater degree than most thinkers um, at the time. That doesn't mean that matters religious aren't important to him. They are very important indeed. Uh, and one of the really striking things about Leviathan and one of the reasons why Hobbes becomes so unpopular at the time is because he in a sense surrenders to to the Leviathan or to the state the right to determine the beliefs of all the people in that society his argument is that we will all have different opinions but that we need someone to tell us what is safe and unsafe so on the one hand Hobbes is very tolerant of diverse views he doesn't really mind what we believe or what we think even though at the time a common sense of beliefs was was generally held to be that which kept a society together the sort of glue that held a society together for Hobbes, differences of opinion at one level don't really matter. But if those differences of opinion are likely to cause trouble, then they must be reined in. And he would have felt that the civil wars in England were largely driven by different religious and moral views. So who determines what is what ought to be believed as a kind of public religion? He hands that all over to the state. So what was seen as a very sinister implication of Hobbes' argument was that the state really then is, is, can determine what we should or shouldn't believe. Now, he would say a wise state will keep that to an absolute minimum. It won't go into the details of, of, of people's beliefs. It should stand back and keep, uh, keep things at a fairly general level. But the implication would be that if it chose to enforce a very particular religious order, then in the interests of public well-being, we all ought to obey
0: Not too long ago, in a podcast pretty close to home, this week I asked my students to give their initial reactions to the first time they came across the ideas of Thomas Hobbes, and I was pleasantly surprised at the range of answers. I thought he was rather pessimistic in saying that there was only the state of nature or the authoritarian state, and that there could be a middle ground.
1: I do agree that Thomas Hobbes is an extremist but I think that it's fair enough given the destruction he'd seen in his lifetime with the Civil War. The state of nature reminds me of Louis Theroux's documentary on the Miami mega jail and how um, prisoners in that jail acted when they were left alone without supervision of guards and they retreated to a state of nature and were um, beating each other up and had no care for each other's, like, property or anything
0: well thomas Hobbes's state of nature might have reminded millie of a miami mega jail but sometimes i wonder if it isn't too far away from the second year locker room on the friday before the christmas holidays anyway now to our competition if you've been waiting with bated breath for the details of the competition wait no further what we're looking for is a logo for the podcast We want you to submit your designs complete with a brief explanation of the design so that we can judge not only what you've produced but also the thought process behind it. Why both elements, I hear you ask? Well, at this stage we feel that developing a coherent and considered design process is actually more important than simply the quality of the final product. And louder still, I hear you ask, what's the prize? Well, Obviously, your design will be enshrined on iTunes for all to see and on our website www.polsockpodcast.com while you bask in the reflected glory, but you'll also be sent a small gift token for your trouble. The closing date for entries will be the end of this term, which by my reckoning is Friday the 22nd of December. Entries should be submitted by email to polsockpodcast at gmail.com. In the next episode, I'm looking forward to demystifying the seemingly murky world of how our national parliament in Leinster House operates. We'll be looking at the structure of the Oireachtas, as well as considering how it is that an idea can go from being something that's just bouncing inside the head of a TD to actually becoming a law. I'll be joined by Anne-Marie McNally, the political director of the Social Democrats, who will guide us through this process. I hope you'll join me for that conversation, and some other anecdotes next time around. And I'll sign off this week as I did last week by reminding you that even though it can be hard to remember, you don't exist apart from society, but rather that you're a part of society. Talk to you again soon.